Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to Hub City, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining one of our serve teams, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. Also, community groups will be starting back up soon, and we would love for you to sign up to be a part of those, either on the church app or at the connection desk. On the last Sunday of the month, directly after service, we will be having a family business meeting where we'll discuss how we are doing this year so far and our plans as we finish up the second half of 2023. Lunch will be provided and childcare for birth through second grade will be available. If you are currently a member or if you're considering making the Hub City Church your new church home, we'd love for you to join us. It's such an exciting time in the life of our church, and we're so thankful for the growth that the Lord is giving us. To help accommodate those looking for seating during service, it would be super helpful to keep end seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service. Kids are always welcome in service, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. That's amazing. So amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm speechless. Uh, Twelve was the final count of brothers and sisters who publicly professed their faith in Christ last week at the beach. And I'm, I'm just still in awe of how good God is. Jason Coulter was one of those whose story we were able to um, get into a testimony video before uh, this Sunday. And uh, it's just beautiful to hear how the Lord pursued uh, and rescued him. But um, all, all of those people who were baptized, they have their own story where they were able to um, man, the, by God's providence, the, the Lord drew them to himself and rescued them from their sin and to his family by grace alone. And so I, I would just encourage you, as Jason did in his video, if you heard uh, that testimony and you know that making a commitment to follow Jesus is the right next step for you, uh, man, we would love to talk with you about that. So uh, feel free to chat with us after the service. Uh, and we'd love to see you be baptized as a profession of your faith in Christ as well. Um, so that's the, man, that's the first thing. God is so good. So good. Um, almost feel like everything else I say now is like, it's so much less than, <laughs> so much less than that. But anyway, um, the next uh, just announcement I have really quick is that uh, we do have our family business meeting coming up on uh, Sunday, August 27th, directly after service. Uh, Childcare for birth through second grade uh, and lunch for all is going to be provided. We'll discuss how we're doing this year so far uh, and our plans as we wrap up 2023. We'll review our uh, current financial uh, statements as well as other things that we're tracking in conjunction with our five-year goals. We do have a lot to celebrate this year. So uh, let me just say, if you're, if you're a member of the Hub City Church, we expect to see you there unless you're you know, ill or traveling or something like that. But if you are not yet a member of the Hub City Church and you just want to know more about uh, us and you kind of want to hear about our finances and all those things before you make a commitment, uh, please come, come join us. All of that, uh, we're open with all of that. We're transparent with 
all of that as we always have been. So please uh, come and join us, eat lunch with us, um, and celebrate with us all that God is doing here. Um, the last thing is that uh, summer is coming to a close, but it doesn't feel like it outside, but summer is coming to a close for us. Uh, but fall is up next, and we do have a lot of good stuff planned, uh, community groups restarting, fellowship, outreach, uh, all that you would expect. Just so you know, we do try to do um, at least one church-wide event of some kind per month because, uh, man, we love men's and women's ministries. We love community groups. Um, but this church family just loves to be all together. And so that's our strategy for that is be all together <laughs> at least once a month. Um, and uh, outside of that corporate fall schedule, we may have a few other little uh, surprise things here and there. So make sure you stay tuned to social media and the app. Um, all right. Let's open back up to Ephesians, this New Testament letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul. It's split into two parts. The beginning of the book up through chapter 3 uh, is all doctrine. It's a lengthy and, and a wonderful articulation of the gospel, how we're saved and the church family that we are saved into. And that said, we're now in the second half of the letter, which is very instructive of how to live practical, uh, practically in light of the gospel as people who have been saved into God's family the body of Christ. And uh, for a few weeks now, we've been in this discussion on the process of change or transformation as Christians. Paul explained it with this language of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And today we're going to spend all of our time on one really big aspect of this. It's the aspect of our sexual ethics. And uh, just as a warning up front, this discussion is somewhat sensitive in nature. And so if you have kids who are with you, um, who are old enough to comprehend what I'm saying, uh, but who you're not ready to discuss the realities of uh, physical intimacy with, then our kids' ministry is open to you as always. But with that said, let's go ahead and uh, read our passage, pray, uh, and then we'll walk through it. Ephesians 5, uh, I'm going to pick it back up in verse 1. It says, therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of, the, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father, God, 
We are so grateful for the work that you are doing among us this year, bringing new brothers and sisters from death to life in our midst by the power of the gospel. Lord, while we desire for our teaching and our ministries and everything we do to be biblical and gospel-centered, we continue to confess that you alone are the one who gives spiritual life and growth. We don't get credit for baptisms and budgets, Lord. These things are in your hands, and we are simply here to be a part of it and to give you all the glory for it. But Father, I pray as we get into a subject that can always be a bit challenging, that you would not allow our growth to be external only, but that you would truly and genuinely change the desires of our hearts and help us all to tear down any idols that we may still have in our lives. Lord, you know better than we possibly could the danger and the destruction that sexual immorality causes, even among your people. So would you help us to be moved this morning by your word, to fight against it collectively and individually and strive to be people growing in practical holiness, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us in Christ. Help me, Lord. Help me to be clear and faithful to our text today. Help me to say things that are helpful and not to say things that are not for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let's start this way. Water baptism, like we all witnessed last week and, and just now in Jason's baptism, okay? Um, this is the making of a public statement. Usually, someone is baptized at the beginning of their Christian life uh, as the way of displaying a symbol to those who are watching. The, the being plunged beneath the water and then raised back up is symbolic of dying to our sin with Christ and being raised with Christ to walk in a new life. And so when someone is baptized, they are saying, I have been made new. By the grace of God, I've been made spiritually alive in Christ. My past of walking in sinful ignorance is behind me. And as a newly adopted son or daughter of God, I'm now committing to walk with Jesus, not only as my Savior, but as my Lord, the one who not only paid the price for my sin on the cross, but who I believe will now direct me by his word and by his spirit to walk in renewed ways that lead to my greatest joy and my greatest flourishing. I'm on a C.S. Lewis kick, I know, but Lewis says, all that we call history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. When we become a Christian and we are baptized, that is what we are leaving behind. We're leaving behind the life of searching for happiness and fulfillment apart from an abiding relationship with God. Because in the gospel, we've come to learn that ultimate and eternal lasting happiness 
is only possible for those who know and love God. As it turns out, God himself is the author and the creator of human happiness, joy, pleasure, fulfillment, and so forth, okay? And so the good news is he wants us, his image bearers, to have those things as they are meant to be had to the fullest. So um, with that premise set, let me give you the foundational principle for our discussion today. Here it is. Embracing God as Father involves the grateful realigning of every aspect of life with His good design. There's more. Don't look at that part yet, okay? Um, This is a really important aspect of the putting off and the putting on business that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 and 5. And and we've said this for the past two weeks, so it bears repeating so that we don't ever forget it, all right? While the New Testament does give us practical instruction in morality, it does, right? The Christian faith is about much more than the outward modification of morality. It's about identity. The Bible is not to be reduced to a mere list of do's and don'ts. It's meant to become a living, comprehensive guide to an entirely new worldview for people who God has radically changed at the heart level, which then flows out into, yes, new morality, okay, but much more than that, a new life mission. We are to be, Paul says, as God's children, imitators of God, who now live to see more and more people come into the redeemed family of God. So uh, the, the changing of our morality, the realigning of every aspect of our lives, it does not come out of a dry sense of religious duty. Like we're just trying to white-knuckle good behavior. It's meant to flow out of our gratitude for who God is, what He's done for us and saving us, and our desire to now be more like Christ. Okay, Because as we become more like Christ, we are living in a way that's more pleasing to God and also more compelling to the world around us. Amen? Okay. So embracing God as Father involves the grateful realigning of every aspect of life with His good design. But the main idea, it gets more specific, okay? Aligning every aspect of life with God's good design, including sex. Now, if you're thinking, well, that took a hard turn. Um, (laughs) Just check the passage, okay? I'm taking a hard turn because Paul takes a hard turn, okay? He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then he goes on for, you know, um, 10 or 12 more verses. So evidently, okay, Paul wants us to understand that if we are going to be spiritually new, okay? If we're going to be spiritually new in Christ, we don't get to compartmentalize our sex lives, okay? 
you're going to be new, you don't get to compartmentalize your sex life. The gospel has implications for every aspect of life, and that includes sex. God made sex, not just for childbearing. He was not surprised to find out that sex is pleasurable. He came up with that, okay? All right, but here's the thing. With all God-given pleasures, God also gives parameters. I didn't write that in the notes, but I should have, okay? (laughs) With all God-given pleasures, God also gives parameters. And listen closely. The parameters do not exist to restrict the level of pleasure. That's not what the parameters are for. They're not to restrict the level of pleasure. The parameters exist to make sure we don't cross over from great pleasure into great pain. The parameters that God puts on sex are not like putting a governor on a Ferrari that can go 200 miles per hour so that it can only go 20. No, okay. The parameters are like the painted lines and the guardrails on the highway that are there to keep us from flying off into the ditch and into the woods and into death. So with that said, Paul cautions us strongly against sexual immorality. This term is the Greek word porneia, from which we derive our modern term pornography. But in the Greek, this word was, it's just a general term that really encapsulated all forms of sexual sin. Lust, that is inappropriate sexual thoughts or longings. Adultery, which is sex with someone other than your spouse. Fornication, which is sex before or outside of marriage. As well as homosexuality, which is sex outside of the appropriate biological design. And instead, between two people of the same biological gender. Paul says... None of that, none of that has a place in the new life of a follower of Christ, okay? So so from our text, the first thing I want to do is explain why sexual immorality is incompatible with the biblical worldview. From our text, I think we can see that any deviation from God's parameters for sex is wrong, impure, idolatrous, and dangerous, Any deviation from God's parameters for sex is wrong, impure, idolatrous, and dangerous. So let's run through those one at a time. First of all, any deviation from God's parameters for sex is wrong. I mean that literally, okay? Um, Verses 8 and 9 say, Walk as children of light, and it says the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So um, for reference about what is right as pertains to sex, we can go all the way back to the beginning, right? Genesis 2, uh, verses 21 through 25 say this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, like he starts singing, right? He like, Right? This is like the reason why your text breaks there, and then it's like is because it's like 
It's poetry. It's like he breaks into song. He's so excited, okay? And so it says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then next we get the biblically prescribed context for sexual intercourse, okay? Verse 24 says, Therefore, <clears throat> a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this language is somewhat poetic, and there's, there's a lot that can be drawn from it other than just sex, but let me just make the most pertinent part clear. This passage in Genesis 2 is the first wedding, okay, followed by the first sexual consummation of marriage. All right, Adam and Eve are naked, unashamed, and this concept of becoming one flesh refers both to the spiritual and to the physical union that happens between husband and wife. This is the biblical standard. This is the biblical standard. God has the ability to make the rules for sex, and this is how he does it. Okay, this is how he does it, and this is where he does it, and that's what makes it good and makes it right, is that God came up with it, okay? Um, when, when Jesus talks about the marital union in, in Matthew 19, this is the passage. Genesis 2 is the passage that he quotes verbatim, but then he actually tacks on something else. He says, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is saying that the context where sex is right, is in a loving and committed covenant marriage where the understanding is that husband and wife reserve no right to part ways, but instead are yoked together for life. So that where there is the most vulnerability and the most intimacy, there's also the most stability and the most trust. Okay, now I'm going to move on to the next aspect in just a moment. But really, if, if you were to flesh this single point out, in theory, this is sufficient for why not to engage in sexual immorality. It's because sex within the confines of marriage is right. Taking it out of those confines is wrong, period. End of sentence. So God's design for sex is right. And he desires for us to enjoy it as the gift that it is, but only when we do it rightly. Okay, when we go against God's design, not only is it wrong, objectively, it's also impure. So in verse 3, Paul lumps together sexual immorality and impurity. When something is impure, the best descriptive term I could think of is contaminated. Okay, um, think about water. In the West, we have clean water in abundance, and we assume that even the water that comes out of our tap or even our garden hose is technically clean enough to drink because it goes through all kinds of processes to ensure its purity. But what if you went to someone's house and they offered you a glass of water with the disclaimer that it's, it's about 95% pure Okay, but 5% could, could contain, you know, like E. coli, black mold, um, fecal matter, just a host of mystery contaminants. Would you drink that water? 
you're like, dude, like, why are you shaking your head? It's only 5% impure. What's wrong with that? It's contaminated. It's contaminated. We don't drink contaminated water because it can be incredibly harmful. God says, don't have contaminated sex. Don't have contaminated sex. Sex is meant to be pure. You take it out of the seal of biblical marriage and you make it harmful instead of helpful, right? Sexual thoughts in your mind about someone that you're not married to, impure. Sexual contact or conversation with someone who is not your spouse, even if you and they are not married, impure. Sexual pleasure alone by yourself, just with your imagination, impure. Okay. Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. That is pure, not contaminated. For God, he says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Guys, we are really good at convincing ourselves that the sexual sin that we are engaged in is really not that bad. There's some bad sexual things out there, but like the stuff we're doing, it's not, it's not really that bad, right? Because we rationalize. We rationalize this. You know, we're, we're only thinking about it. <laughs> or we're only watching it, but we're not doing it ourselves. Or we're by ourselves. No one else is even present. Or even though we're not married, we really do love and respect the person that we're having sex with, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we're, we're good at justifying degrees of sexual immorality, but that does not make it pure. That doesn't make it pure because here's the thing. Sex is supposed to take place in the marriage bed. I'm not saying that means it can only happen in your bed at home. I think that is an expression that means between husband and wife. Friends, if it's between husband and wife, you're free in Christ, so long as it's pure and mutually enjoyable, okay? But where sex is removed from that context, even where you may have two people who care deeply for one another but are not married, their motivations are inevitably mixed because it's sex without the commitment that God says is required, right? Let me tell you, sex is a spiritually binding act, okay? There are mental and emotional things that happen by God's design, when two people engage in sexual acts. And there's meant to be permanence behind it. There's meant to be permanence behind it. So, to quote Beyonce, if you like it, put a ring on it, okay? <laughs> and if you want to avoid sexual immorality, probably don't take any other of Beyonce's advice. Okay, just that one, right? But anyway, I hope I'm clear here that marriage is the only place within God's word that we see that sex can be pure. Okay, now don't get me wrong here, all right? I think there are things 
that can make sex impure even within marriage, okay? Um, including, but not limited to, other people. Don't let them in there, okay? Including pornography, including things that would make one spouse uncomfortable, including anything forceful or harmful. These two are impure because they either break the parameters already stated, okay, um, or they compromise the loving, gentle, pure, and servant-hearted intimacy that should exist between a Christ-like husband and wife. Now, I don't think I need to spend a ton of time on the why for this one, but um, any form of sex between a man and a man or a woman and a woman is impure. Even if, in today's secular society, they're legally married. Okay, Church, this is, this is not a statement of hatred. Okay, The Bible teaches that this is unequivocally impermissible. Okay. I know that the LGBTQ stuff is a really hot-button topic, and so I'll discuss towards the end how we engage with people who subscribe to that ideology. But let me just say it plainly here. Homosexuality, in all of its forms and manifestations, is a sin, just like adultery is a sin. Okay. Now, the reason I say it that way is because there have been Christians, and sadly, even Christian leaders in the past who have tried to make homosexuality out to be the worst sin. It's not. It's not. And so we're not to treat people who are caught in homosexual sin differently than we would treat any other sinner. Okay? Gay, lesbian, and gender-confused people are still people made in the image of God. And so while we know that, yes, they are engaged in a life of sinful impurity, the answer is not to berate them or belittle them. They're not our enemies. They're our mission. We should not be trying to pummel or defeat them. We should be trying to persuade and win them to Christ. But next, sex outside of God's parameters is not only wrong and impure, the Scriptures make clear that it's also idolatrous. Okay, Guys, I would make the argument that sex is ultimately about the glory of God. Okay, Our, our whole lives as Christians are meant to be worship. And so this physical act that is the closest expression of intimacy within the confines of the closest human relationship that exists to display Christ and his church. Okay, I'm not saying this to be weird, but sex is, is not just meant to terminate on itself as a great pleasure between husband and wife, even though it is that. It is a great pleasure between husband and wife, but it's meant to roll up into more than that. It's meant to roll up into worship of the God who made it. Okay. So to, so to cut the good gift of sex out of that framework and to attempt to use it for selfish enjoyment outside of any acknowledgement of God is idolatry. 
It's idolatry. It's either worship of sex, worship of another person, or worship of yourself. So if in sex, your mindset is sex is the greatest thing ever, or this person I'm having sex with is the greatest thing ever, or I'm going to have a lot of sex because I'm the greatest thing ever, and sex serves me. That's idolatry. Every bit of it, idolatry. Okay? In our text, Paul mentions covetousness being idolatry, which is basically greed. Okay? To covet is to desire something that does not belong to you. And so um, if there's an unnatural craving for sexual pleasure that you're trying to satiate all the time, particularly outside of God's parameters, whether through lust or pornography or whatever the case may be, then you are worshiping an idol. You're worshiping an idol. That's what that is. Very frequently we see in Scripture the tie between sexual immorality and idolatry. Um, Romans 1 really hits on this, speaking of sinful people in general. It says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, idolatry, right? Who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. So I think you see it both ways here. Sexual immorality is itself idolatry. Sexual immorality is itself idolatry, but also an idolatrous society that forgets God and worships other things will inevitably fall into gross sexual immorality. Exhibit A, the United States of America in 2023. Okay, Filthiness and crudeness of a sexual nature are just rampant. Okay? Um, it's so pervasive, if you're seeing any kind of media or advertising on a regular basis, you're seeing it, right? You see a commercial, you see a billboard, like you can't drive through Crestview without seeing it, right? This is indicative of an entire society idolizing sex or idolizing self by using sex in ways that are antithetical to the biblical worldview. But finally, sex outside of God's parameters is wrong, impure, idolatrous, and number four, dangerous. It's dangerous. Guys, almost always when the biblical writers talk about sexual immorality, they talk about God's judgment that will be poured out on those who refuse to turn away from it. I'm not talking about those who still occasionally struggle here or there with temptation, but who actually hate it and are fighting it and staying accountable to it. I'm not, I'm not talking about those people. Those, are, those people are called Christians, okay? Um, I'm talking about those who hang on to it and let it live on and grow in their hearts and lives, even, even secretly if they have to. Okay. This kind of 
hard-heartedness and unrepentance regarding sexual immorality because it will not submit to the lordship of Christ. It will not ultimately be covered by the blood of Christ. If it won't submit to the lordship of Christ, it won't be covered by the blood of Christ. Okay? And instead, it will reap the punishment and wrath that's reserved for any and all who will not come to Jesus. Regarding the fearfulness of this prospect, Jesus says that it would be better to gouge out your eyes and to cut off your hands to put an end to sexual sin than to experience the punishment of an eternal hell. This is Jesus who says this. And he says, I think he says it for two reasons. Number one, he says it to articulate the danger of continuing an unrepentant sexual sin after knowing better. But number two, I think he does it to articulate the great links that we should be willing to go to in order to guard ourselves from that danger. Okay. If you'd like to read the Lord's words yourself, I would encourage you to do so in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is stone cold serious about sexual immorality. He loved us enough to die for us and to forgive us of all of our sexual sin. But he warns us that continuing to willingly and habitually engage in it is to reject his offer of forgiveness. It's practical rejection. One of the final times that sexual immorality is referenced in the Bible is in Revelation verse 20, or, uh, chapter 21, when Christ returns and he, um, the, the, the offer of God's grace finally comes to a close for anyone who loves their sin too much to turn from it. I, you do know that God's grace eventually comes to an end for those who will not repent. We see that in Revelation 21. It's this beautiful vision that John has. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, 
Embracing God as Father involves the grateful realigning of every aspect of life with his good design, including sex. Sex is a good gift, but any deviation from God's parameters for sex is wrong, impure, idolatrous, and dangerous. So friends, let me exhort you with a passage from 1 Corinthians 6, and then we'll close with a few points of application. 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them partners or make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. From this passage and the passage that we've just read, here's what I want to say to you. While sexual sin is no more damning than any other sin, it is more deceitful and destructive. Okay, my point is, any sin, any sin, if unrepented of, is enough to send you to hell. Friends, that's why Jesus had to die. That's why Jesus had to die, because sin is sin is sin is sin. It's all bad. It's all, every bit of it's bad. And whether you live it out with your hands or just dwell on it in your heart, it will condemn you apart from faith in Jesus. It will, okay? But because of the nature of sexual pleasure, sin of a sexual nature has an ability to deceive us unlike other sins. This is why Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Our culture, guys, our culture is headlong in sexual sin. And it's because it's so deceptive. It can be so tempting and so alluring. And guys, the stats are terrifying. It's all up in the church. It's all up in the church, okay? From denominations that are now excusing and even applauding homosexuality to pornography usage being sky high among the average church attender. Guys, please, I'm, I'm begging you. Don't be the statistic. Don't be the statistic. Align your life with God's good design and flee from sexual immorality. Flee, run away fast. Because it's not just deceitful, it's destructive. It will destroy your marriage and it will destroy your relationship with Christ. Paul says there's something about sexual sin that makes it particularly damaging. He says it's a sin against your own body, right? So 
Maybe some form of sexual immorality is something you have been carrying around still with you. And you haven't been willing to put it down, but today's the day. Today's the day. Brother or sister, be, be done with it. Be done with it. Be done with the impurity and the idolatry. I'm not saying it's easy, but there is a community here who will help you as we all strive to pursue what is good and right and true together. If we're going to beat sexual immorality, we got to do it together. We can't do it alone. We need each other, okay? But let's move now to three points of application, okay? So um, along with this appeal to you that I just made, here's the first thing, okay? Live as and in the light. Don't embrace or excuse sexual immorality. Expose it and eradicate it. Okay, Paul in our passage, he, he doesn't just say that we are to point people to the light. He says that because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we are the light. We are light. Again, I, I think the reason he says it this way is so that we see the incompatibility of pointing people to Jesus and then continuing to live willingly in our sin. Right? The Bible offers no invitation to that, okay? For those of us who claim Christ, we are to be growing in and displaying the holiness of God through our transformed lives. If we are no different than the unbelievers in our lives, then what is there that's going to be compelling to them to see and realize that Jesus makes people gloriously different? Right? So that means... We are not to embrace and excuse sexual immorality, either in our lives or in the things that we fill our lives with. Shows, movies, books, websites, music that is flippant about or that normalizes and praises sexual, uh, sexual immorality. It should not be stuff that we are consuming and filling our lives and our hearts and our minds with. Okay, Colossians 3.5 says... Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So how do you put that stuff to death? Starve it. That's a good way to put something to death. Starve it. Suffocate it. Okay? Turn it off. Pick something else. Paul says, work to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So if there is something in your life that you are unsure about, ask yourself, is this pleasing to the Lord? If Christ were to return, return right now with me watching this, would I be happy about that? Search the Scriptures. Talk to other mature believers for their counsel and then make the best decision that you can. Okay? The text says, live as children of the light and don't mingle in and partner with the darkness. Okay, But not only should we live as light, we should live in the light. First John 1.7 says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, th this is the admonition to look at your life honestly 
and be truthful about where you might be falling into anything that is less than glorifying to God so that you can expose it. So you can expose it. Shine the light on it so that you can see it and eradicate it. That that means uproot it. Get rid of it. If this is something that you need to do, our, our men's and our women's ministries are both really great places to start building relationships with other men or, or women, respectively, who can help encourage you and hold you accountable to how you know you want to live. Okay, so that's number one. Live as and in the light. Don't embrace or excuse sexual morality. Expose it and eradicate it. Here's the second thing. Love and protect your spouse. Have sex with them often. (laughs) Could have seen that coming a mile away. (laughs) Love and protect your spouse. Have sex with them often, okay? Um, I, I think it's very interesting that Paul says that in place of sexual filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, instead, we should replace it with thanksgiving. How's that work? How's that work? I think the answer is that if we are enjoying sex in ways that are right and good and true within God's parameters, it will produce a deep gratitude in us for the beauty and pleasure of pure married sex. Okay, In this way, thankfulness becomes the antidote to immoral covetousness that is flippant or filthy when it comes to sex. Um, it's like, you know, once we've tasted and had access to $100 filet mignon, okay, we don't want to go back to buying frozen $1 Salisbury steak from Dollar Tree, okay? The Bible says the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. The point is that the spiritual and physical intimacy that are able to be had between a husband and wife is so much more sweet and valuable and nourishing than the cheap, low-quality knockoff, right? And friends, the Bible is not bashful when it speaks about the enjoyment that's meant to be had between married couples. Listen to this. Proverbs 5 says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are always before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. This is saying that married intimacy is like a walled garden, okay, where everything is safe and lovely and sustainable as it should be. So why would you break down the walls and open it up for others to take what rightly belongs to you and your spouse for the two of you to enjoy alone, right? As Christians, we are to be generous people who share what we have with others, but not when it comes to sex. We are to be rightly jealous in the sense that our spouse is our spouse. My wife is mine, okay? She's mine. Brothers, you should feel the same way. 
All right. Now, as it pertains to the frequency of sexual intimacy, while every couple is going to have to work through what this looks like for them, Scripture is clear that sex is not to be neglected. It's not to be neglected. Let me read you 1 Corinthians 7. It says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. I'm just going to be real. The number of times I've heard people not having sex because of prayer is super rare, friends. All right? Am I wrong? Okay. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the frequency, whatever it looks like, okay, should be able to be characterized by being often enough that neither spouse feels deprived. Okay, Uh, we do this, yes, because sex is enjoyable. But this passage also tells us that this is a matter of faithfulness to your husband or your wife to serve them and to satisfy them sexually for the explicit purpose of fighting against the temptations of sexual immorality that we have already said are so prevalent. Years ago, When I taught on sex, I said that we should be on guard against the two pitfalls on either side of this issue. On one side, there's the treating sex like it's God and viewing it as the ultimate fulfillment of life when it's just just one pleasure among many that exists for the worship of God. On the other side, there's treating sex as gross, Okay, and like a like a necessary function for procreation that really shouldn't be engaged in otherwise. Sex is not God, and sex is not gross. It's made by God, and it is good for married couples to engage in with regularity, with a heart to love and protect each other. So, practical application regarding our new sexual ethics. Live as and in the light. Don't embrace or excuse sexual immorality. Expose it and eradicate it. Love and protect your spouse by having sex with them often. And last, number three, love sexual sinners. Tell them the truth, give them the gospel, and call them to repent. Okay, we'll end with this. So as I touched on briefly earlier, while sexual sin has always been an issue, okay, like there's a lot of, it's written about in the Bible, right? Okay, it's a long time ago. This has always been an issue. Even the more extreme forms like homosexuality. We are living in a time where things seem to be kind of going off the rails in some unprecedented ways, mainly with the transgender ideology, where not only is homosexual behavior being applauded by major institutions and corporations, but claims are being made by those in power 
that gender is able to be detached from biological sex so that men can claim uh, to actually be women and women men. And even more bizarre than that, medical operations approved by insurance agencies and performed by doctors and surgeons to mutilate the human body to appear as though it's the opposite as what God designed. Okay? As I said earlier, I say again, this is so clearly wrong. This is so clearly wrong and impure and idolatrous from the biblical standpoint. And as Jesus' church, we must stand strong on this conviction and not be deluded by the secular culture around us, no matter what they may threaten us with. And friends, if you haven't been listening, the threats have begun and they will continue. They will continue. It doesn't matter what we're threatened with. We we can't be deluded by this. We, we cannot approve things that run contrary to nature and in opposition to God's good design for human flourishing. Our society wants us to agree with them that on one hand, how and who someone has sex with is no big deal. Well, on the other hand, they want us to affirm that whatever someone says that their gender and sexual preferences are, are somehow this inalienable aspect of their identity. So it's no big deal over out of this side of their mouth, and also it's this inalienable aspect that you can't contradict, okay? Um, it's so clearly, the roots are in darkness. This is confusion. This is delusion. If a man claims to be a female, lesbian, cat, trapped in a human male body, the culture now wants us to go along with that and not only pretend that it's normal, but praise him for being so brave. Guys, this is, I don't know how else to say, this is a deep and dark delusion that we cannot get on board with. We can't get on board with it. And maybe this goes without saying, but we must protect our children from people who would dare to target them and attempt to misinform their precious hearts and minds with perverse, deviant sexual agendas. That's not okay. We must protect our kids. It's absolutely wicked. And we are not to bow our knee and give up our convictions to appease those who would have the audacity to now demand that we are the ones being bigoted and wrong. Okay. All that said, how do we address people entrenched in this kind of outlandish, LGBTQ, whatever, sexual immorality? How do we address people like that? Well, we address them in the same way that we would address any person whose identity is rooted in anything other than Christ. There's not another way. There's not some other, there's not one way to address all these sinners and then one specific way to address LGBTQ sinners. It's the same way. How do you talk to an 18-year-old, blue-haired, transgender, non-binary person whose sex life is not only immoral, but inconceivable. 
You talk to them in the same way that you would talk to a well-dressed 60-year-old veteran who worships Donald Trump. This is the same problem, friends. It's the same problem. It's a problem of identity. It's a problem of idolatry. And you address it the same way. Here's how you do it. You talk to them with respect and compassion. You talk to them with respect and compassion. You love them by telling them the truth, that they are a sinner separated from God who is looking for affirmation and fulfillment and safety in a false worldly ideology where it can never be found. But that there is grace for them in Christ. There's grace for them in Christ, the Son of God who lived the perfect life that they never could, died for their sin, and rose again to forgive them of all of their sexual idolatry and to offer them the hope of a redeemed life where they can be part of God's family and enjoy the goodness of pursuing his right design for them. In other words, how do we love sexual sinners? (laughs) Same way we love all sinners. We don't need to be mean and nasty with them. We don't need to spew a bunch of hateful vitriol at them. They've already got tons of that. Is it helping? No, it's not. Instead, we love them by giving them something much different and much more compelling, the gospel, the grace of God. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You've probably heard that before, haven't you? Where God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Did you know that's attached to his grace? (laughs) That's what God's saying. He's saying, I'm not like you. I'm more gracious than you can possibly imagine. So come to me. Forsake your sin. Repent and come to me. There's mercy. There's mercy. Church, this is our message to the sexually immoral. Repent. Come to Jesus where you will find the satisfaction that your soul is truly longing for. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as always. Even the challenging parts, even the difficult parts. Father, I'm, it's not comfortable for me, God, to get up on a stage and talk about sex. It's just not. But Father, I pray that it's helpful. This is all from your word. This doesn't come out of me. This, these things came out of your mouth for our benefit, for our flourishing. Father, I pray that this would be a church, that the Hub City Church would be a church that increasingly is pursuing practical, not just positional holiness, but practical holiness 
and that we would gladly, more and more each day, realign our lives with your good design, even when it comes to things like sex, God. Sex is a good gift. We thank you for it. Help us to use it rightly. Help us to be pure about the way that we use it. Help us to glorify and worship you with it. And help us to be gracious to those who are caught in sexual sin and immorality, God. Help us to not look down on them as lesser than us because they're not. And help us to present the gospel to them, the opportunity to repent and turn from it and have Christ. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.